Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob Conger, uh, International Ambassador for the Casualty Actuarial Society. I bring you all greetings from the uh, CAS. And I congratulate you on what's been a terrific meeting. The sessions I've attended have been absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed them. The session today is about predictive modeling but it's not about the technical mathematics and programming work in predictive modeling, but it's rather a more conceptual question. Is there such a thing as too much predictive modeling? For many actuaries working in short-term insurance, and we're going to use short-term insurance as the context for our conversation this morning, although the, the conversation could be extended to the other types of insurance as well, but for many actuaries working in short-term insurance, the availability of new types of data, new sources of data, massive data storage, new computing power, and predictive modeling techniques has really transformed the nature of actuarial work, not just at the technical level, but in the applications to which actuarial work is being performed and the, and the different aspects of the insurance operation in which actuaries are playing a key part in developing and interpreting business analytics. In the U.S. and in various other markets, the arrival of big data and predictive modeling also has transformed the marketplace and disrupted the marketplace in major ways with some of the innovators substantially displacing the traditional marketplace leaders and achieving great gains in market share, but also in profitability, followed, of course, by a consecutive set of leapfroggings as some of the traditional leaders hurry to catch up and get ahead, and then the traditional followers trying to figure out how they follow in the pathway of all of this innovation. The consumer experience also has been reshaped by this innovation uh, with uh, the traditional insurance agent or broker being in many, cases, in many cases being replaced by the internet relationship of the individual. Insurance shopping has become a uh, daily adventure for some people. Uh, and the regulators in the U.S., the insurance regulators and other regulators who take quite an in interest in consumer protection have um, engaged in the discussion as well and have struggled in some cases to figure out how to keep regulatory policies and practices up to, up to uh, speed with the changing marketplace innovations and practices. In today's session, we'll be talking a little bit more about some of the changes that we've observed and that we've been involved in, um, and talk about the implications of these changes in the marketplace and to the consumers and to the regulation of insurance and the end really to the actuaries, again, not in the technical sense, but in the broader scope of the implications of the work that we do. My colleagues, Mary Hosford and Paul Braithwaite, will be uh, providing most of the content for the session today, uh, following some introductory comments uh, from each of them to sort of set the stage. We're going to conduct much of this session as a debate. And I've asked each of them uh, to take a relatively extreme posture, perhaps inspired by uh, recent election practices in the U.S. 
Uh, Paul is with uh, FTI Consulting, but the uh, views he expresses today are not necessarily the views of either his employer or even himself, because again, I've asked him to take an extreme posture sort of in favor of predictive modeling. Uh, Mary is with the regulatory authority in Massachusetts, and likewise, I've asked her to take an extreme posture that may or may not reflect her view or the views of her employer. Um, and we will have some time, I think, for all of you to uh, join in the debate as well with either questions you might like to pose to the debaters or your own view on any of the issues that, uh, that we talk about. Paul, would you like to get us started uh, by uh, laying the groundwork? Yes, <clears throat> thank you, Bob. And thank you all for having us here. It's quite a pleasure to be in this beautiful city of Cape Town and, and get to know some actuaries from another country and, uh, and attend your very interesting session so far. As Bob outlined, I'll take a few minutes to set part of the stage for our discussion and then followed by Mary. And I'd like to give you a bit of a flavor for where are we with predictive modeling, how has it evolved over time, and what impact is it having on the marketplace and profitability of companies potentially. So to start, we're rapidly heading toward a more and more refined concept of individual equity. And that's, uh, you know, individual equity versus the collective is one of the concepts that will underlie our debate here today. And this movement towards individual equity is being fueled by two forces, technology and information. And those are inexplicably or inexplicably intertwined. In terms of technology, you've probably seen some of this before. It may be a bit out of date. Things may be moving either even faster. But Moore's Law says that computing power doubles every 18 months. Storage has increased even faster, making storage really a non-issue in terms of cost for most of what we do these days. Um, bandwidth doubles every 21 months. And content is, there's another law about content that it increases as twice the participants in a network, um, so twice as fast as the number of participants. And the result of that is the estimates are that more than 90% of today's information content was created in the last two years. So, what, so taking that into, what does that mean for personal auto? Well, the middle part of this chart is what we used to do. We would collect underwriting information, pricing information, claim information, and analyze that in a variety of ways to come up with prices and classifications for our risks. And now there are lots of other elements entering the picture. Uh, there are credit scores. Credit scores have been shown to be a very powerful predictor of losses in many, many areas of insurance. There are black boxes, mobile technology, gathering information as we go along. There's social media. Social media, in my experience so far, has had a lot more application and use on the claims side, but it's creeping into the underwriting world as well. And geospatial information, not only 
do we collect information and use information on where your car is garaged and how far you drive it to work, but how it's used and where it is at every moment in time. So there's a tremendous amount of data that's entering the picture these days. So that's kind of where we are. Let's, you know, I, I guess to give you a, two sides of my thoughts on this a bit, um, here's a timeline of where we had come from. And I'm, I'm pretty old, so I've been doing this for a while as an actuary. I know it seems like it's a relatively young group of a growing profession here in South Africa, which is very exciting. Um, but I started my career in the late 1970s, and one of my first actuarial, as an as a actuarial trainee, and one of my first assignments was to do multivariate analysis. I was working for an industry, U.S. industry data collection and an advisory rate organization. So we had lots of data, and, um, and we're looking for new ways to come up with more accurate pricing formulas for the industry. So I was doing multivariate analysis, but it was mostly done in Fortran and an early version of SAS, and some of the programs would take several hours to run, sometimes overnight, but we did it. So, so it's not really new that we are gathering all the data we need and analyzing it in the best ways we can with the best tools we have. I think actuaries have been doing that for a long time. And we did use some external information as well. I also was involved in econometric studies, for example, of does the price of oil affect the number of miles driven and, and the number of industry auto accidents or those kinds of things, but um, using relatively simple linear regression. So, so, that's, so, the, so the framework has existed, but but in recent years, things have changed quite a bit in terms of information and tools available. Credit scoring information was, in the mid to late 90s, in the United States, found to be, as I said, a pretty powerful predictor. And by 2000, that just hit the market like a storm, and after being introduced by one or two companies, everyone has pretty much followed along. Not too long, too long after that, um, a U.S. insurance company, Progressive, first started using usage-based insurance. And that has now grown to 5 million uh, subscribed. You know, it's, a, it's sort of, essentially it's a voluntary product. The way Progressive and others offer it is you can, can have a device in your car and be rated partially on what the information that the device gathers or you can opt out of it. So the people that have opted in are about 5 million so far and that compares to about 260 million cars in the U.S. or drivers, uh, so it's a little bit less than 2%. So still relatively, relatively small, but growing, and I think it'll continue to grow. So kind of stepping back a, a bit also, um, what are, you know, I've talked a little bit about pricing and risk classification, but there really are a variety of applications of predictive analytics and predictive models and insurance, and they really are continuing to grow in, in a number of areas. And these are these are this is work as you may be familiar with. It's a lot of work being done by actuaries, but it's a lot of work being done by other statisticians, data scientists, etc. So it's we don't own this whole world, but we're an important part of this world, and hopefully a growing part of this world. Um, so they cover the gamut of 
the operations of an insurance company, from pricing and underwriting to claims to operations, um, etc. And um, you know, maybe in the debate section, if there are questions, we can go through some more detailed examples of some of those. I don't want to take too much time now. Um, but just to give you a quick flavor, here's you know one example of the type of analysis you might do on the claim side uh, using clustering algorithms and to cut cluster claims into homogeneous pools and and then look at within a pool where do claims settle out what are the outcomes of claims and and looking at the ones that ex exceed the expected or normal outcome by a certain margin can help you identify fraud activity or other elements of the claims process that can be improved. You know, it's what we often refer to as claims leakage, um, but it's a way to uh, improve claim outcomes, reduce waste, reduce cost. Okay, so um, one of, I guess uh, the, the last couple of quick topics I have are what's happened in the marketplace in terms of have companies' market shares been affected by this, and uh, and how prevalent is predictive analytics in various lines of insurance? So, in terms of the market, the company that I mentioned, Progressive, was number seven back about 20 years ago, 1996, with a 3% share of the U.S. market. Within 10 years, from 96 to 2006. That company more than doubled its market share. Now, I can't say that's all because of usage-based insurance or their use of analytics, but they were certainly a pioneer. Um, there are other elements of their business model that contributed to that, but um, it's a pretty dramatic movement in a mature industry within a 10-year time frame, in my view. And um, you can also see the top, you know, what's what I think this whole wave is doing is, is driving consolidation to some degree. So the top 10 have moved from 64% of the total industry in 1996 to 71% in 20 years later. So again, that's a fairly significant shift. There's still lots of players, but the bigger players, the, the companies with greater tools and analytics and and uh, better information are more and more dominating the marketplace. So you might ask, well, they're getting bigger, but does that mean they're more profitable or are they less profitable because there's more, more competition? Um, <clears throat> so as one example, if you take a look at that company Progressive that I mentioned, they have really an incredible track record of, that's the blue line at the bottom. So this is their combined ratio, their loss and expense ratio, and it has outperformed the industry by eight to 10 points every year for the past 20 years. And um, so that's, they are much more profitable, much more successful, and at the same time growing. Okay, just turning quickly to my last topic, um, based on a Tillinghast Towers Watson survey, now Willis Towers Watson in 2014. These are <coughs> the survey participants' responses of, of to what extent are you using predictive modeling in 
risk selection and pricing in various lines of insurance. So for personal automobile, the 97% in the red box shows that it's very pervasive. Um, you know, maybe, probably, I'm guessing one participant or two might have said they're not using it. Um, homeowners was number two, and other lines of insurance were more in the 50% range. But in response to another question in that survey, they all thought it was, well, I guess the survey compared to a prior survey showed a very significant increase. So increases of 10 to 19% from the prior survey. So things are moving pretty fast. And, and then in terms of other areas beyond pricing and risk selection, the same survey showed that currently um, you know, somewhere between 10 and 28% of companies are using predictive modeling in other areas to detect fraud, other claims activities, premium audits, etc. Um, so other business activities, but they all the participants expected that to increase dramatically to the 50 to 70% within two years, which is about this year that we're in now, 2016. So I think people are all, always optimistic in what they can accomplish in two years looking forward. So those numbers may be, in my view, a bit optimistic, but things are certainly moving in that direction. So that's what I wanted to cover to start. Thank you for your attention. And now I'll turn it over to my friend, Mary Hosford. At least she was my friend when we started this. So I'll have to see how she responds with her comments later. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, so I am going to spend a few minutes talking to you about the very exciting world of US insurance regulation. So um, I don't have to speak into that. So um, please lock the door so no one can get away. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, I think it's pertinent to our discussion because I think regulation in the U.S. is a little different probably than what you're used to here. Um, we're really into it over there. But, but first, I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. As you've heard, today is a big holiday for us Americans. Um, the uh, turkey is actually the traditional meal that we have on Thanksgiving. I'm told that you can't really get turkey in Cape Town. So I will have to find something else to have, but I'm sure I will wash it down with a glass of your very lovely South African wine, or two. <laughs> so thanks for that. So regulation in the U.S., um, it's quite involved. There's a, it's quite a mishmash. Um, each state has its own set of regulations and regulators, in addition so do the territories and the District of Columbia, where our president lives. And the federal government also gets into the act. So if you are a company that writes in multiple states, as most companies are, you have to keep track of all of the different regulations and rules and statutes and people to know and who to talk to. So it can be very difficult. Um, one might ask why we have such a seemingly inefficient system, and uh, many have. Um, companies, there are companies that have complained and said, why can't we just have one set of rules, please? Um, but other companies have developed these compliance departments, and they are laser-focused on each of the insurance departments. And it's a competitive advantage for them, and they've sunk a lot of resources into that. So um, they have actually managed to maintain the status quo for our state and territory and D.C. and federal-based insurance regulation system. Um, and that's the way it is for now. Um, additionally, since 
the so-called Obamacare has come into play, which is our federally regulated health insurance system. Um, now, now that we've seen that work for a few years, there's been very little suggestion that we should change the other lines to federal regulation. <laughs> I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, luckily, though, we do have the NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and that, uh, similar to how the IAA is an umbrella organization over the actuarial organizations throughout the world, um, that is what the NAIC is. It's the um, state insurance departments joined together, so they do um, set standards and produce model laws and regulations so that you will find from state to state, you will find some similarities uh, many times over what is uh, done for regulation. It's governed by the regulators, it's staffed by regulators. The state that I, am, that I work in um, is on about 20 committees. It's a zillion committees, task forces, working groups. Um, they also include consumer representatives to uh, allow them to have their say into how regulation works in the country. Uh, but they have no regula regulatory authority, um, so anything they do has to be pushed out to the states, and the states have to um, put them into law. They also do a lot of research, and they do um, education for state regulators, which is great. And they also accredit states, so they'll come out to our insurance department every three years and make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And they also have um, designations for individual regulators. You can become certified as a professional insurance regulator, which I'm not. <laughs> Um, and uh, yes, the federal insurance, the federal government gets into insurance regulation as well. Theirs is more of a monitoring of the whole system. They try to make sure that uh, if any company, any company that is too big to fail doesn't. They also get involved in certain random things, terrorism, flood insurance, um, Medicare, which is the insurance for older Americans, and they regulate Obamacare, as I said. Uh, and they did put out a report just a couple of days ago on um, the consumer experience in U.S., and one of the major topics of that, and we'll touch on that later probably, is big data. Um, so this just shows a slide of how, what the results look like in the face of all of this regulation. Um, and you can see that the combined ratios are probably not what you would hope for. But the return on surplus is not bad, uh, except for 2016. We've had some storms in 2016 um, that are causing our results to be not so great. This information just came out from the NAIC via webinar just a couple of weeks ago. So like I said, they're very good about doing research and uh, putting information out for the state regulators. And these, by the way, are statutory results, meaning that is the um, very conservative solvency-based accounting that is required to be done in the U.S. So if you looked at these numbers on a gap basis, they would probably look um, better. And in fact, though, I think 7% over the past few years isn't, isn't too bad. So insurance regulation in the US, it's all about consumer protection, solvency by virtue of reviewing financials and making sure that companies are able to uh, pay their claims, market conduct, which is usually generated via consumer complaints, um, we will get consumer complaints and then go out and look and see what the companies are doing because we want to make sure that they're treating their customers fairly. And then where I get involved is rate regulation. And I think that might, this is what might be different from what you're used to here. So in most states, and especially for personal lines, companies need to file their uh, policy language and their rates, and in some cases their underwriting criteria, with the insurance departments, and we approve it before they can use it. So uh, for me, I actually work now in a health insurance role. The health insurers in Massachusetts are required to make their rates filed every three months. 
So every three months, which, yes, Nancy, it is ridiculous. <laughs> um, we don't make the rules, we just enforce them. They, uh, I have to review filings, and no, they cannot be used until I have said OK. So the standards, and these might look familiar to you, these are pretty much what you'd see in any state. The legal standards for rates to be legal are that they not, cannot be excessive, inadequate, or unfairly discriminatory. Additionally, though, there are other standards that apply. As a casualty actuary practicing in the U.S., I and those who file rates with me must adhere to the rate-making principles. And the top one there is that the rates must be an estimate of the expected value of future costs. Additionally, practicing in the United States, I, am, I must adhere to the standards of practice for actuaries. And so I selected the ones that I thought would be relevant for predictive modeling. First of all, of course, risk classification, determining uh, how to uh, dissect your book and decide who pays what. Data quality, of course, is very important when it comes to predictive modeling. You all know that. Using models outside the actuary's area of expertise, of course, is a standard that must be applied. And actual communications, communicating to the regulator what it is you have done and are planning to do, and communicating to uh, the insureds and everyone else about how your models work and how they were derived. So I think that's the end of me. Um, I'll turn this over to Bob for some questions, and hopefully we'll get some discussion from you. Thanks. Well, the two of you seem pretty friendly so far. We'll see if we can stir that up a little bit. So, Mary, from, uh, from Paul's slides, we can see that there have been some pretty clear winners and losers in terms of the insurance companies who have gained or lost market share, have been relatively more or less profitable um, uh, over time. Vibrant competition seems like a pretty good thing for the consumer in the marketplace. Uh, yet, right from the uh, very beginning of the introduction of, of predictive modeling and credit scores, the U.S. regulators have expressed a number of concerns. Uh, so tell us, what, what's the problem? My bike on still? Um, Bob, there are qu quite a few problems. I don't think we have anything against competition, but I think it's very nice if you are a customer of Progressive and you're one of the ones who got your rates decreased because of your driving skills. Competition's great as long as you're on the winning side. Um, but the f there is one element of competition that I am concerned about, and that is this competition to get to the big data, to get to big data and predictive modeling first. It seems like there's just this rush, 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 big data, big data, big data, we need to have it, we need to have it. And I think that just the actuarial judgment and reasoned thinking and, uh, I don't know, it just seems that that is kind of going out the window and there's just this rush to compete. We have to have it, we have to have it. I worked for a company, um, before I was a regulator, I did work in the private sector for a while, and. Uh, one of the companies I worked for, their goal was to have more price points than anybody else. Didn't really matter if the data supported it or if there was even enough data to support it. We need more price points. And I just think it's uh, this com competition to get to have a big data predictive analysis is um, just a little twisted. Paul is our uh, designated uh, proponent of predictive modeling uh, here on the stage. Uh, how would you respond? Well, I, I think um, people are always a little bit afraid of change and afraid of the unknown, and I think that's the reaction here. But more people like it, 
then don't like it. Uh, that's borne out by one of the surveys, that, not, not a survey, but actually a vote in the U.S., one of the U.S. states, when credit scoring, use of credit information was controversial. The state of Oregon, one of our West Coast states, put, put it, the population to a vote. Um, are you in favor of it or against it? And the results were 65% in favor, 35% against it. You know, interestingly, that I, I won't say people are that smart or that knowledgeable or understand their insurance prices. Um, I mean, people are smart and knowledgeable, but it's hard to understand what goes into your insurance price. It's, uh, but that does line up, you know, roughly with the number of people who benefit uh, versus the number of people who pay more for their auto insurance. So, so people like the incentive. People like being recognized when they're higher risk or lower risk in a lot of cases. And that has all kinds of tangential benefits. If you charge the people and the companies that are more hazardous more for their insurance, that will drive behaviors that reduce the cost of insurance in general terms. We don't allow credit scoring in Massachusetts for pricing or even for underwriting. Um, I just wondered, is Oregon one of those states that legalized marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> they, they do it up in that part of the country, I think. That, that that's a topic for one? another debate. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> <laughs> now, both of you made, uh, made reference to, um, uh, in either, either in what you just said or in the introductory comments, to... Uh, uh, some downsides. Uh, one, the fact that uh, some people are seeing perhaps price, uh, significant price increases and perhaps uh, a reduction in availability uh, as well. But also um, uh, the, the reference to the collective, the um, you know, sort of the, the basis of insurance and the historical roots of insurance are much like uh, what happens in a uh, Amish farm community. One farmer's burn barn burns down, all of the other farmers get together and rebuild the barn for that farmer. And insurance, uh, through the intermediary of the insurance company, is really performing very much a similar role. We all play, pay uh, a bit of premium, and in turn, people who are unfortunate enough to have insurance accidents and claims have the financial consequences of those addressed. Um, so, uh, Mary, is that, is that fundamental idea of insurance? Is that, uh, is that being undermined by this uh, race to more refined classifications? Absolutely. I think um, the classification system is really getting completely out of hand with this predictive modeling, this predictive modeling business. Um, I, I wonder if it's time to actually rethink this whole idea of classifying insureds and maybe we should go back to the Amish economy method where you go and you buy insurance and you're not, you're, everybody pays the same rate. And everybody gets it and it's, oh, it's available to all. Do you agree, Paul? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a complete fallacy. So Mary and her, um, her, her uh, misleading regulator colleagues often bring that up, that that we've defeated the concept of insurance, we've defeated the concept of pooling, and it's just a complete fallacy. As you all know as actuaries, the variance of A 
A, uh, the variance of A plus B is the variance of A plus the variance of B if A and B are uncorrelated variables. That has not changed, never will change. That's a fundamental equation in statistics. So, so the concept of pooling exists. What we're talking about is recognizing a difference in expected cost for individual drivers in the case of automobile insurance. So a model might help estimate one driver has a 4% chance of a claim in a year, another driver 5%, another driver 6%. That doesn't mean they are going to have an accident that year or they're not going to have an accident. It means we know more about their, their, their expected probability. But you ensure that pool of drivers, you have the exact same benefits of pooling of insurance because there's the standard deviation of the pool will be less than the standard deviations of the individual drivers. Uh, how, sorry, Bob. Go ahead. How is that fair um, in every state except for one, that is just north of the state I live in, automobile insurance is compulsory in the U.S. So if you just rate people based on their Facebook postings or whatever, how and they can't afford their insurance anymore. If they drive the rates up based on some model that they have no control over, what are they supposed to do? Sell their houses so they can insure their cars? Well, that, that's, a, that there's, that's an economic question that there are two sides of. So clearly the people that are forced out of not driving, not being able to buy insurance, are not, are not happy, they do not benefit but the rest of us who are good drivers and don't want to be on the road with somebody that causes more accidents than, than um, everybody else or you know, much higher than the average do benefit. So that's a social economic question that I don't think is, as insurance companies is our burden. That's really a, a question of government and regulation to set the rules and then we operate within those rules. Thanks. Um, how would I explain to a consumer? This is Bob. I'm sort of. <laughs> how the, I guess one's difficult to ex explaining debates. to a consumer when they see a big rate change based on some black box model. How do I explain that to them? Or is that my problem? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly a believer in transparency. I think that's the role of. I mean, that's an important safety net of regulators, it's, it's your role and all regulators' role to make sure that customers are being treated fairly, that the models work, the models are doing their job. And um, um, so, you know, I, I don't think there should be a black box. Uh, you have a right to inspect those boxes. Paul, you had earlier uh, referred to the um, possibility that um, uh, inclusion of some of these variables, particularly variables relating to driving behavior, could actually cause people to improve their behavior and earn a better rate while at the same time making Mary's roads uh, uh, safer. How important is it that the variables in, in these um, predictive models be causally related to claims as opposed to just correlated with claims? Uh, I guess, you know, in my view, causality is not necessary. In, um, you know, in the U.S., we have, the U.S. profession, we have similar actuarial standards of practice as you do in South Africa. Uh, more detailed, there are more of them. 
So we have one specifically related to risk classification. So it's a, and it's a standard on risk classification for all practice areas. It lays out the criteria that actuaries need to follow in developing a risk classification system and in developing, you know, the key defined term in that is, is risk characteristics. What is, a, what is a risk characteristic? What is an appropriate risk characteristic? And a risk characteristic being, you know, some type of information or variable or element that is used to distinguish between classes of rates. And that standard states very clearly that causality is not required. What is required is that risk characteristics be selected in a manner that are related to expected outcomes. So we shouldn't have a risk characteristic that you know, has nothing to do with loss experience or some other reason to expect an outcome. I think causality is extremely important. I mean, again, it just makes sense to have variables that are related to, what, to the activity. And again, it goes to explaining to people and f being, f being fair to people. In fact, I think it's very important that the variables be something that people have some control over. So if there's something you can do to improve your lot, that seems reasonable. But if it's just some random black box, not causal characteristic, then, I mean, what's a person supposed to do? That's a rhetorical question. You have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're accustomed to those from the uh, political debates as well. <laughs> the, um, well, then, uh, with either of those positions, are there... Um, is there a point beyond which this process should not evolve? Is there such a, is there a line we shouldn't go over in terms of the types of data we use? For example, there may be a combination of data types that help uh, essentially identify gender in a state where gender is not a permitted rating variable on an explicit basis. Or uh, based on my behavior online, the insurance company can tell that I'm not somebody who shops actively for the best price. If I see something I want or need, I go ahead and buy it. So they decide they can put a slightly higher profit margin on my price than perhaps on yours, Mary, because you're a, a very careful shopper. Is there, uh, along some dimensions, are there some lines that we should not be crossing, that the insurance uh, companies should not be crossing in, uh, uh, in the evolution of predictive models? Uh, yes, I think that brings up two important points. So, um, in I think most states, and certainly ours, there are certain uh, criteria that insurance companies can't use and they are not even allowed to ask about when you apply for auto insurance. So gender, age, um, there is a whole host of them. But now, using social media and whatever other means, insurance companies can just go around that and find out for themselves. You know, you look on Facebook and some, everybody's congratulating everybody else on their birthdays at Facebook. Well, there you go. Okay, got your age now. Um, so I think that's definitely something that needs to be curbed. And then secondly, you've touched on a topic that I really, really hate, which is price optimization, which, as you say, uh, paying what the market will bear. So if you're a shopper, um, you'll probably pay a little less than someone who isn't. And guess what, Bob? I'm not. <laughs> I've actually been with the same insurance company for about 12 years, not because I love them so much, but just because I'm too darn lazy to shop my insurance around. So it, I would be very angry to find out that I actually pay more for my loyalty than somebody who shops around. 
Paul, what do you think? Well, on those, taking those two issues in turn, on the first issue, if, if gender or age is illegal, illegal to use in a certain jurisdiction, then clearly it, it behooves us as an actuarial profession to not come up with some tricky pros, proxy for that variable and do a study and say, okay, I've, I've um, figured out how to predict gender within a 99% degree certainty, and since we can't use gender as a rating variable, we'll use this other combination of 15 variables. I think uh, we do owe a duty to the public, so that, you know, that in my mind is violating the law or regulations. On the second issue, though, on price optimization, um, you know, there's nothing that makes insurance special. We, we are most of us buy insurance, most of us buy all kinds of other products, airline tickets. Um, I don't know if that's true here, but airline prices vary every five minutes when I shop for airline tickets. I hate and that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's the world of competition and economics and, you know, it does benefit consumers. Insurance companies do need to make a profit to stay in business and pay all their claims. So there is a benefit to consumers as well. Uh, just on the topic of price optimization, the, the dreaded price optimization, um, the standard, I believe, for, or the principle of rate making anyway, states that the rate should include the projected costs. And it doesn't really f factor in any shopping discounts or non-discounts. Um, and I'd just like to point out that a lot of states, uh, not ours yet, but a lot of them have outlawed the use of price optimization based on shopping habits. Um, in fact, um, the Ohio Insurance Department, who has banned it, has defined uh, price optimization as varying premiums based on factors that are totally unrelated to risk of loss in order to charge each insured the highest price that the market will bear. And I, I think that's an accurate definition, and I, I hope uh, we will outlaw it soon in Massachusetts. Turning maybe to another dimension of this, uh, Paul, when I entered the uh, insurance, uh, the actuarial profession, maybe a few, just a few years before you did, somewhere back along the, uh, the start of your timeline in the, uh, the hazy uh, past, um, I remember that uh, on every project we struggled with data quality, uh, and uh, particularly when we got to the classification level, figuring out why some clerk in the statistical department had coded everybody to a particular town on one and during one particular week um, and there, thereby driving up the price of insurance in that town uh, was, was kind of a, uh, an eye-opening experience in data quality. Uh, if uh, insurance companies can't handle data quality with the small data that we dealt with back 40 years ago, um, how, do, how does data quality come into the discussion now? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question, and it certainly doesn't diminish data quality. I think um, all of us is, have found in, in our analysis that, that, that getting good data, getting clean data, um, adjusting for companies that have been acquired, other changes in coding, et cetera, you know, those are important things to any aspect of any an analysis. Um, so, so that's a, extremely important. It's reflected in our standards of practice. Uh, you know, along with that, um, you know, it's important when you do an analysis that 
and build a model that you do back, back, uh, you do testing on a holdout sample of data. So you can't just say, you know, I think this enters the element of using a variable that um, uh, is not necessarily, there's no real clear link to causality. So if you, if you're dealing with one set of data and you think, okay, I have this new magic variable that's going to predict loss outcomes and you haven't tested it on a subsequent year or a different set of data, then there's a bigger chance that that's not really going to be a predictive variable. So, so testing on holdout samples, the testing your models thoroughly and ensuring, you know, checking peer review, ensuring accuracy, those are all important things. And it's also important, and this is actually one of the things that's reflected in our standard of practice on risk classification is to consider, um, is, it's to consider adverse selection and to monitor for adverse selection. So if you come up with a new rating scheme, a new way of classifying insureds, insureds and introduce that in the market, you know, it's important to pretty quickly after you introduce that, take a look at, okay, who are you getting, who are you not getting, what's an early look at their loss experience, and is this moving in the direction that I would have thought or not? Uh, Mary, what I are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think, I think data accuracy is going to be the issue that the regulators really hit on. Um, I didn't mention before that the NEIC, um, they, as I said, have a million working groups and committees, and some of the newer ones are uh, the cyber security and sharing economy and climate change groups, and guess what? Big data. So the NAIC, which is the umbrella organization again over all of our regulatory agencies, they're studying that. The consumer groups are very much against this move towards predictive modeling. And one of the arguments they make is the issues with the data. I attended a session at the African Congress the other day on data, and the person that was giving the talk uh, pointed out a statistic that one-third of business leaders believe their data are not reliable, so that's very comforting for the regulators. Um, in addition, the federal government, as I said, came out with a report just two days ago, and one of their big issues was the accuracy and usability of the data. So I think that's where you're going to see some regulatory movement, hopefully soon. Paul, across, uh, uh, of course, uh, insurance is not the only market that's been uh, disrupted by big data and uh, technology and so forth. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, Uber, which has disrupted the taxicab market, the regulators in the taxicab industry have really struggled to figure out how to, how to grapple with this new type of competitor that does not fit into the uh, traditional regulatory model. Um, and uh, you know, certainly, uh, as Mary has described, in the case of, uh, of insurance, the regulators have been really uh, uh, working in various ways to, to grapple with this evolution in technology and business practices and, uh, and so forth. Uh, surely, uh, you must have some sympathy with the regulators. What, uh, what advice would you give to a regulator in this arena? Well, that, that Bob, is really simple. The regulators should employ more actuaries like Mary so they can fully vet the models. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's easier said than done, as you might expect. Um, state insurance departments are not exactly overloaded with funding, and that actually is one of the big problems with um, the uh, review of these models, is we don't really have the people, the necessary staff or resource to do, resources to do it. One thought uh, that's 
currently in play, uh, just starting to be talked about, is having the NAIC develop a department that could analyze models on behalf of the states. Again, that require resources, and so um, luckily we are funded by insurance company assessments. So look for that in your bills going going forward. But you know, the other thing to keep in mind there is is what marketplace you're talking about. In in America, we're generally dealing with very large pools of customers, as I showed or as I talked about with personal automobile insurance. It's 260 million cars. Um, and lots of competitors. I showed the top 10 or 65 to 75 percent of the marketplace. There are dozens of other competitors. And, you know, with the advent of all these changes, um, it's very easy to get competitive quotes. They're instantaneous. Many companies will give you quotes from 10 other companies when they give you their price. So, so there's lots of information out there. And you have to keep in mind in interpreting these questions, no consumer is forced to buy insurance from one insurance company. And what we're talking about is giving an array of choices. So um, it's, a, it's a more difficult situation in a very small jurisdiction with very few players. Um, so that's, that I see as a regulatory challenge. But in, in bigger jurisdictions, the market does to some extent regulate itself because insurance is a highly competitive business. Yeah, one thing I failed to point out um, relatedly about evaluating insurance company predictive models is that in most states, and certainly ours, when companies make these rate filings, they're public, they're public documents, so any of their competitors com can come in and look and see, or not come in, they can actually just go online, look at the filings and say, oh, that's what the competitors are doing, good. So what happens is companies don't want to give us too much information. It's like pulling teeth getting answers about these filings. You know, they'll send the minimal amount and then you have to keep asking and asking and asking. And understandably, I understand they don't want to share information with competitors, but um, that's kind of another, another hurdle that the regulators face in the U.S. or in Massachusetts at least. We've got about 10 minutes left, so I'd like to uh, give all of you in the room the chance to uh, jump into this uh, uh, debate either with um, uh, tough ones for, the, uh, for our uh, panelists or with your own view. Uh, and I think we'll probably want to use microphones, so uh, uh, we've got a couple of microphones coming around. Uh, let's take, there's a, the first hand I saw was in the, uh, in the uh, back row, right, yeah, that's the one, and then we'll take uh, the second microphone next. Go ahead. Um, just a question regarding the ability to sue, because um, a lot of American, well, there's, there is quite a lot of Americans that are aware of the, the, the different items that they can sue on, but if, uh, if I'm charged more for my motor insurance because there's an error in the data, um, the model said I was female indirectly or male indirectly through all of the you know, different variables, do the consumers have any recourse? Or if it says, you know, like, I, drove, I drive 50 k's an hour, but I actually only drive 20, and for that I should have been paying a lower premium. Is there anything that I can do if my friend that lives a similar lifestyle then gets charged a lower premium? Is there ability to sue, or what would be the recourse for the individual? So you're referring specifically to the case where that individual's data is somehow incorrect rather than they just are unhappy with the whole system. Is that right? Yeah. It's yeah, and I think that's one of the um, major problems that have been identified in this federal government report that just came out and also by the NEIC, that first of all, how would you even know? Because you'd have to 
kind of try to find out from your insurance company how, how the price worked. And often the insurers say they can't even get down to the level of, you know, there's so many factors. Our algorithm is really complicated. We can't really, sorry, sorry. Um, so that's kind of a problem. I guess if you did figure out that there was something wrong with your information, I, I suppose you could uh, bring them to court. And that's the difference between this kind of uh, data and credit scoring data. Credit scoring data has been put through a lot of rigor, um, forced to be put through a lot of rigor for exactly this kind of thing, because people were finding out that they had information in their credit scores that wasn't correct. Now, Mary, um uh, an individual consumer often feels rather helpless in the face of a large insurance company, but uh, I think all of the state regulatory authorities maintain a, uh, a, a consumer division that, in addition to looking at uh, macroscopic things, actually responds to individual consumer uh, concerns and complaints. That's right. That's true. Is there, have you seen? Do you know if there's been a lot of activity on this front in uh, your insurance department? Um, I have not heard. Actually, there's a lot of activity on the homeowners front, um, probably for similar reasons. But um, again, it's very hard to um, pinpoint exactly what happens, and certainly to pinpoint what information exactly was used on a consumer. That's just something we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to do. We'd have to turn it back to the insurer and hope they can answer. Okay. Yeah, but you know, people do have the ability to sue. Um, lawyers are very creative in America. I wouldn't recommend our system, but there are, there are a large number of lawsuits over almost everything, but including insurance rating variables. And I've been involved in, in a few that involve actuarial aspects. You know, one, for example, involving um, a homeowner's insurance company that used a, a certain tool, uh, it's a, it's a, a third-party company that lots of companies use that, that helps estimate the value of a home, and um, you know, that, leads, that entered their rating formula. Um, you know, there have been examples in auto insurance as well related to risk classification, but the, the problem, unfortunately, is that it's not really an individual getting angry and bringing that suit. It's a, it's a smart lawyer bringing that suit on the behalf of thousands of people, and if they can win a case or reach a settlement, uh, the lawyers keep most of the money. So uh, <laughs> it's not exactly an answer, but, um, but it, does, it does keep companies um, honest to a certain degree because they care very much about their reputations. And their wallets. <laughs> and their wallets. <laughs> so there was a uh, question. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I think if, you have the microphone. If I may, I've got two questions. Um, the first is Paul showed a slide uh, showing how the progressive outperformed the rest of the market. I happened to identify there was another company called GEICO that managed to outperform the market by a greater margin. I would be interested to know if you know why, if there was also data or something else. Um, and I have a second question, which goes perhaps a little bit deeper into the debate of risk rating versus pooling of risk. And that is that uh, in the context of life insurance and health insurance, if you have access to genetic information, you may end up to identify, if I may use the language of a certain political candidate, you, you may end up with a basket of uninsurables, uh, you know, people that nobody wants. So if all the insurance companies have access to the same information and all of them are getting really clever about risk rating, um, that those people will not have access to insurance. And my question to Paul is whether you have any suggestions for, for those people in the future. 
Yes, Paul. <laughs> so those are two. Uh, let's take those questions one at a time. Cause Wait a minute. Quite you're, you're on my side of the room. You're supposed to help me. <laughs> That's right. Friend of the okay. bride, friend of the groom. Okay. So for, first, the, the company GEICO, we refer to as, as GEICO. It's a company owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Um, it's a company that actually was nearly bankrupt um, not maybe 25 years ago and, um, and changed their strategy and the jurisdictions they rode in and then have become extremely successful. So I, I have not worked closely with them, but in my experience and what I know of the market, and you may both have comments, they, they, were, they do use modeling. They were one of the early adopters of credit information they're also a pretty low cost provider, so that's an, an element that uh, allows them to outperform the market, and, and they have great advertising. They've got some of the best advertising of, of any company in uh, the United States. They're a very well-known brand, and they um, you know, have leapfrogged other companies because of that. Their marketing spokesman is a uh, salamander, a uh, you know, small, creepy, crawly critter. With a British accent. <laughs> Maybe it's a South African accent. It could be. We yeah, don't know. We're Americans. It's hard for know. us in the U.S. to know the difference sometimes. The, uh, um, well, on on the second question, uh, Mary, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, uh, the safety net mechanisms that exist in the various sta states for uh, uh, people who are not able to uh, find insurance from the conventional market. Yeah, I mean, this has come up in other lines. In, um, for most markets, at least for personal lines, there are... Um, like risk pools. Um, so, for example, for auto insurance, is so-called assigned risk plan. So if you can't find insurance, you can go to this thing and get terrible insurance at high prices. So that's our great solution <laughs> for that. I mean... Tell us how you really feel about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. And, I, I mean, it goes right back to um, this ability to keep cutting and cutting the uh, risk classifications finer and finer. People will find themselves without ability to get insurance, and that's what they'll be stuck with. So... I don't think that's a great solution. And certainly affordability uh, is, is part of the equation that sometimes gets confused with availability. I exactly. Think. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, in our, I, certainly that can happen theoretically. I think in practice in America, it does not happen with automobile insurance um, because, you know, first of all, companies will never adopt the same view of risk or modeling approach, it's, it's often hard within a company to get everybody to agree on how do we think we should be doing this. So to get the whole industry to adopt the same approach is generally unlikely. But, but there are certain types of customers that are driven into, you know, a, into a high rate area, um, products that are geared towards them. Some, some are products that are sold monthly instead of every six months or annually. And, um, you know, and they're there's a, and they're they are expensive um, and they're because of that there's some companies that target the bad risk because because everybody knows what a bad risk is I think there have been several companies that I've seen in my career though some of the successful ones are the ones that say let's go out after the business that nobody else wants because we can charge a fair price or a higher price um, so it is available but affordability is really not an answer that I think the insurance industry can be expected to solve. That's a, a government question. There was another question uh, back here on... Uh, okay, uh, you can see better than I can, so I'll, uh, we'll, we'll do the tyranny of who's holding the microphone. Is there somebody? 
Hi, my question's been partially answered already, but I'm going to throw my little grenade in any case. <laughs> there could be an argument that you're penalizing the poor for being the poor and therefore perpetuating inequality, which goes against the idea of community solidarity. Or in South Africa, we call it Ubuntu. Exactly, that's where... I mean, I think it makes sense to take a, another look at this whole classification scheme in the first place. And like I said, isn't, maybe it's time to go back to the, uh, the Amish ways and have insurance for everybody at the same price. And Paul, in the early days of credit scoring, I think this was one of the uh, uh, concerns, wasn't it? Um, it was, yes. And so, you know, affordability, uh, well, I, I think that, that is an important issue. It's an important issue that we should think about as a profession. Um, as an insurance industry, though, I don't think you can expect insurance companies to voluntarily um, promote equality in, in some way, because if, you, if one does, they'll be adversely selected against, and they'll lose even more money, and they won't be around very long. So that it doesn't really work economically. Um, but, you know, but <clears throat> there are places for social insurance and if within a certain country the concept of social insurance or partial social insurance makes more sense, then um, absolutely that's something that should be considered. The, um, uh, I see that unfortunately we are out of time um, and um, so I want to thank all of, uh, all of you for being here. I want to thank several of you for uh, taking advantage of the few minutes we had for you to engage in the conversation. And, um, but most importantly, I want to thank uh, Paul and Mary for uh, engaging in this debate in a, uh, in a way that helped uh, open up some of the important issues here. So please join me in thanking Paul and Mary. Thank you.